0: In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One of the uh, preachers that in the United States today that's considered one of the best preachers is a guy named Will Willimon. He was a longtime chaplain at Duke University and then later was a Methodist bishop in Alabama. But he tells this one story about on one occasion when he was asked to go preach at an inner city church at the church of one of his friends. And he he preached and did all this and then the service kept going and going and going and he said the service went on for two and a half hours and when it was over he asked his friend the pastor he said to him you know how do these people endure two and a half hours each week and uh, his friend said well listen we we live in a place where unemployment is 50% he said all week his congregation has people telling him you're not worth anything You don't make any money. You don't have a nice car. You don't have a job. You you don't have this basic dignity that our society gives. And he says, I need all this time to sing. I need the liturgy and the prayers and the message and the readings and all this just to cut through the lies and get people to see that they're the beloved of God, that they are the adopted children of God, that they are royalty, that they're citizens of above and all of this to get back. And I think, if I'm honest, there, I need a bit of that reminder as well, probably also on a weekly basis on not two and a half hours. <laughs> and I suspect that some of you do too, that we need to be reminded of those things again and again. And that's part about what I wanna talk about this morning in the context of our first reading that we did from the book of Hebrews. This is a book that we've not talked about a bunch, and I wanna start by just giving you a quick just thumbnail sketch, uh, a reminder of what this book is about and where it is before we kind of jump into it. But this is a, a book that if you were kind of trying to get into some of the big themes of it, you would say the book has a big picture of presenting how we have direct access to God the Father through the work of Jesus and the call that places on us. That's kind of the highest level summary I can make of the book. We don't know who wrote the book. There, are, there were early parts of the church that said Paul wrote it, but even early scholars in the church said no it's a different style of Greek and so on and so forth that it's somebody else we don't know who wrote it so you'll hear us talk about the the author of Hebrews we don't even know a hundred percent who the audience was but the second century scribes were pretty sure it's written to a Hebrew congregation so that's where it got its name and we're fairly sure it's written to a Hebrew congregation in Rome it is a book that is it has a uh, 13 chapters and we the reading we had today is from the 10th chapter and um, I love the passage that we read today because it you kind of get from to this moment where there's a pivot in it from kind of all this deep theology that the author's been doing to a pivot where he's now he wants to kind of turn and make it practical and the way the New Testament scholar and Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright talks about it he says this pivot is at verse 22 which I'm going to read in a few minutes not now but this is the N.T. Wright talks about that verse. He says the verse 22 is the primary reason that we've come all this way, collecting key passages from Scripture, marshalling arguments here and there, calling up ideas and images, familiar and unfamiliar, shaping and polishing the exposition of Jesus as God's Son, the truly human one, the great high priest, the mediator of the new covenant. And we get um, throughout these the book of Hebrews, you, you get a lot of what's gone before where the author is doing this comparison, at least implicitly, between the Old Testament notion of priests and making these sacrifices, this whole system of sacrifices, versus Jesus, this once and for all sacrifice done by the once and for all high priest and that cannot be repeated and how he's exalted now and how we get all this. And then we get, after we're done with that, is where we get to this pivot where he says, therefore, And then he's going to launch into all these, therefore, let us. And we're going to have enough lettuce to make a salad with this thing today. (laughs) There are going to be three of them we're going to talk about. But but it's a pivot. It's a pivot where he's going to, it's a kind of the moment where he's going to say, so what? We've been talking about all this stuff. So what? And we get to the very first one of these in verse 22 where he says, okay, therefore, let us with true hearts uh, draw near to God. And I'm going to read the, the actual passage to you. This is 22. He says, Let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure, heart, sorry, with pure water. We get this idea that we, because he's saying, because of all the stuff that's happened, we can approach with Confidence because of this theology which he's been developing about being cleansed by the blood of Christ that's been sprinkled on us and the, the waters of baptism, that we've got confidence in the ability, despite our sinfulness, to approach God, to know that God hears our prayers, to know that God hears our cries with mercy, even if it doesn't mean we get exactly what we want the way we think we should get it, but he hears us and responds and acts with mercy. And that's the first one of these uh, that, this therefore that he calls us into with let us. The, the second one he does is to say, let us hold on to the confession of the hope that we've received. Hold on to that confession. I'm gonna read the actual um, passage that he, that he gives. This is in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. And <clears throat> this verse probably meant more even then because they were, you know, again, if it's the people in Rome like we think it was, they were in opposition. They were probably in persecution. And he's telling them, look, have confidence. Have assurance that you can approach, but also hold on to all this stuff. Hold on to this confession of hope that you've received. Hold on to knowing that you're a citizen of above. Hold on to knowing you're the beloved. Hold on to knowing you're the adopted child. Hold on to knowing that the worst day of life you've ever had won't, won't be the last word. Hold on to the gospel itself. Hold on to all these things. Don't let anybody take it from you. We think about the gospel itself, I read recently the, the sort of the way that Tim Keller, the celebrity pastor, I'm gonna say, from, uh, from New York City, the way he likes to talk about the gospel, he says, this is the gospel that you are a sinner way more than you had imagined and you're loved way more than you hoped and how all this works out in Christ but we hold on to that just tenaciously holding on to that and we have to because we live in a world where cynical voices and all kinds of things will want to pull that from us people that will tell us if you want to be a true intellect you can't believe this stuff or didn't you did you miss the enlightenment you're not able to believe this stuff. Or, or that's just the silliness that people believe because they don't have all the answers and all the, different, all the different voices that want to tell you something else other than the deep truth and love that God gives. And it's always right there. No one's ever going to prove any of that stuff wrong. That we hold on to it. And it makes a difference in how we live and what we hold on to. And in it, there's a profound uh, encouragement in just holding on to it. I recently read... Um, you guys know I grew up in South Texas, so I'm going to probably butcher some of these pronunciations. Um, but this idea that um, of holding on to hope in these key moments. I was reading the story of the great Russian uh, writer, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The Russian writer, he spent years in the Siberian prison, and he got to this point where he was completely done. He was He was done saying, I don't want any more of this. And he has this moment where he says he made his plan that on this day he was going to check it in. And his plan was he was going to, they were out in the field working. He was just going to set down his shovel and wait for the, the uh, guards to come beat him to death. And so he started doing this, and one of the fellow prisoners came over where he was and just in front of him got his own shovel and made the sign of the cross in the dirt and then erased it. And he talks about what a significant moment that, that this was when this prisoner reached over. Um, he said that later, he said that this, his entire being was energized by that little reminder of hope and courage that we have in Christ. That He found the strength to continue because a fellow believer had cared enough to remind him of hope. And we're reminded that we need to hold on to that hope and we also need to share that hope and encourage others as, as we'll talk about. We live in this place where, where we have all kinds of different people situations and voices that want to take us away from that and part of our journey and mission is to boldly proclaim into that this message of hope that there is this hope that comes from Christ and this love and this different place that that takes place with all of this and that leads us then to um, the third and the final sort of lettuce that I want to talk about (laughs) Um, and that's the one I titled today's sermon for and when I talked about stir it up because it's going to talk about how we need to stir, ponder how to stir up one another to love and to good deeds. And I'm going to read the actual passage to you. This is verses 24 and 25. Therefore, and let us consider how to provoke one another, or, or to, in other translations say to stir up one another, to love and to good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This, I think, brings us back as part of this, these core things he's saying follow is to have a mindset shift and reminder that Christianity calls us to care about other people, to stir up one another. It's about one another. There's no such thing as a selfish Christianity, that we're meant to be a people for others, that we're meant to, you know, we receive and we hold on And we get anchored in all these different things, but we stir up one another to encourage one another and to do all these different things to figure out how we can do this. And if you get the way this passage reads, it goes on to say, the context makes it clear that we do this stirring up one another by meeting together, by being the church together, by living this life of hope together. That's what we do. And and part of the passage says that we're to encourage one another. And again, we do that in in this context. The early church from the very earliest days, they met every single week. And I want to suggest if we want to stir one another up and live life together and do all this, it, it is more important than we know that we stay in the habit of meeting. Not just once a month, not just when it's convenient, but every Sunday that you're in town and you're not sick, you're here because that's part of how we encourage one another, provoke one another, do all these things to, to love and to good deeds. It's how we get to know one another, know what's going on and share life with one another. It's how we get to know the hurt. We all carry hurt. We all of us have hurts. We don't say it enough. We all, we all have moments where we have God encounters that we need to share with one another. All these different things that help build us up. It's part of what we need to be able to encourage one another in how we live out our lives and um, we need to do it as a church, and the very presence together is an encouragement. When we sing together, when we say the the creed together, when we pray together, when we hear the readings together, when we think about and ponder what Scripture means together, all of that together in community is a source of encouragement and hope that we need to hold on to. And we need, and I think part of evangelism itself is not only knowing that and holding that for ourselves, but then seeing that this is something good that others need and inviting somebody just come and see. Come and see a place of hope and encouragement, a place where we do it poorly, no doubt, but where we're committed to, to loving everybody who walks through our doors explicitly. Like we're not here just to give good service or thank you, whatever, but to love as profoundly and as deeply as we can and to encourage one another, and that encouragement matters. I was reminded of this recently about how significant just basic encouragement can be. As I recently read a story about this man in Australia, and there, I'll, I'll tell you the story. There's this, near Sydney, down on the coast, there's, a, uh, there's these cliffs that are known as the Gap, and they're beautiful. Apparently, it's a big tourist site, if you're in Sydney, to go to. But sadly, in an infamy, it's also a very common place where people take their lives. And there's a man who for many, many decades lived next door to, to, the, to the gap. He's a guy named Don Ritchie. And he uh, talks about how every time he would see somebody walking to the cliffs alone, he would come out of his house to meet them. And he would um, just give them the most basic courtesies, invite them how are you doing can I help you you want to come have some tea he goes on to say in this um always remember the power of a simple smile a helping hand a listening ear and a kind word basic encouragement between 1964 and 2009 he helped save more than 164 people he said the greatest uh joy he has is every christmas he gets tons of cards and presents from people who he who he helped save saying that was such a dark period of life that you you helped me in that basic courtesy and encouragement and you helped me through it and now it's a different world you see it he sees it in a different place in 2009 he was awarded the medal of the order of australia for for um, preventing suicides at the gap he's since passed on but he's still the legend is told about him and He's known as the angel of the gap. To me, it's a reminder of how important it is for all of us in this room and for us as a community that's called to love as Christ loved us to take it out in the world and just to be a place of hope, to be a people of hope and a people of encouragement. And the writer of Hebrews would tell us with all this great love and theology and sacrifice and resurrection, he would bring it down to us and say, let us draw near with a true heart. Let us hold on to the hope of the confession that we have and let us stir one another up to love and to good deeds. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you call us on a journey to learn more what it is to to live as your beloved, as your children, and to learn more what it is to share from your bounty, from your grace, from your love in the world that needs it. We pray, Lord, as we gather week by week, that you would equip us and encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.